Welcome to the podcast. This is the Nursing Crash Cart episode number three, and my name is Cameron. If this is your first episode, welcome aboard. I'd like to invite you to go back and check out the previous episodes, as I'll be building on concepts and topics from my past ramblings. Uh, This podcast is geared towards new nurses in the emergency department, or those that might be interested in joining us for all the fun and excitement of emergency nursing, or even for those that are already nurses in the ED and just want a bit of supplemental education or refreshers. This episode is the first of the Chief Complaint series, where I'll be talking about the nursing process as it relates to the patient's chief complaint in the setting of the emergency department. Today's episode is going to be a doozy as it's chest pain, so there's likely never going to be a shift in the emergency department where you don't take care of at least one patient with chest pain, uh, which is why I want to tackle it first. I'll likely revisit this topic again in the future after I get a good rhythm going with these chief complaint podcasts, but uh, today you kind of get to be the guinea pig for my verbal diarrhea. So let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to talk about the focused assessments, potential differentials to be thinking about, uh, interventions, including a few uh, pharmacological ones, and then evaluating those interventions. Uh, another podcast will probably be coming to talk about cardiac and vasoactive medications, since there's a ton to talk about with those. Uh, it certainly won't fit within this podcast, and I'm trying to keep them in about the 30-minute range. Chest pain is just a, it's a bit of a lengthy one to cover, because there's, there's five different body systems that we tend to associate um, around chest pain. The uh, obvious one, of course, is the cardiac and vascular systems, and that's the one that most people are are concerned about when they come to the emergency department. Following that, you've got respiratory, gastrointestinal, musculoskeletal, and neurologic. Uh, We're going to kind of cover the the big and dangerous causes of chest pain today, uh, but the the kind of 10-second overview of the the non-cardiac and non or, or less serious uh, chest pain diagnoses include um, acid reflux and pancreatitis, which can both present as pain both above and below the diaphragm, uh, anxiety, uh, costochondritis, and then, of course, like trauma. So, yeah, if somebody shoots you in the chest, you're going to have chest pain. Uh, so, as I talked about in the last episode, the, the big thing in the emergency department isn't always to diagnose, but it's to rule out. Our first and fastest rule out with chest pain is uh, is an EKG. As the patient's even getting to your bed, uh, you need to be exposing the upper body, providing modesty where possible, uh, while talking to the patient, kind of getting the triage going. Uh, the 12 lead EKG should be your your kind of quick priority. Uh, each facility is different, and it's it's always best to kind of check with what your policy is where you work. Uh, but for us, and I'm sure the vast majority of emergency departments, uh, we kind of have inclusion criteria based on age and past medical history, including things like diabetes and the ever generic quote unquote heart history. Uh, so until you learn. Uh, when your facility says it's okay not to do an EKG, just assume everyone who says chest pain is getting one along with a chest x-ray. Uh, for our department, uh, this EKG, this first one, has to be complete 
and then given to either an emergency physician resident who's at least in their second year or the attending emergency physician within 10 minutes of the patient's arrival. I, I love 12 leads and rhythm interpretation, so I'm sure uh, in the future we'll do an episode on that as well. Uh, but for now, we'll say that the biggest importance of a 12 lead EKG is that you're looking for a STEMI. Uh, if you're still in school or unsure what that means, it stands for an ST elevated myocardial infarction. It's a it's kind of a fancy way of saying that someone is very likely having an active heart attack, where part of the heart uh, is not being perfused with blood and oxygen as well as it should be. The 12 lead EKG, along with the patient's uh, symptoms and their history, are the biggest factors when deciding if someone uh, you know, needs to go and be reperfused at the cath lab immediately. So when that decision is made, they have to go to the cath lab quick so that the interventional cardiologist can open up blockages uh, in the heart. Uh, I know we have different metrics that have to be met, and I'm sure most hospitals are the same, uh, where from door time to complete reperfusion has to be within like 45 minutes. So it's it's kind of one of those things, um, and we'll talk about it later on, when anything with, with heart attacks, uh, the phrase is, time is muscle. So the faster you can get to solving and reperfusing the heart, the more muscle you will end up saving. So EKG and your initial set of vitals are your primary goals, assuming that the patient you know, kind of falls past the standard trump cards of your ABCs. You know, if the patient's blue and unresponsive, the EKG is probably not your first priority. Uh, vitals can kind of give you a good idea on underlying causes or concerns that should be addressed. It can also kind of start pointing you towards potential differentials. Um, you know, is the patient's heart rate 33 or is it 190? Is their blood pressure 244 over 120 or is it 70 over, you know, palp? Do they have a temperature of 103 degrees? Is their room air oxygen saturation 82%? So any, any large outlying vitals like that should be reported to the physicians right away because these typically mean a much larger workup or more advanced interventions and you want more hands on board helping. Critical care is very much a team sport, so don't try to do everything solo. So <clears throat> now we want to know about this patient's chest pain. In healthcare, we love acronyms and mnemonics. The first acronym that you can use on any focused assessment where there's pain, um, it's one you might already be familiar with, is the OPQRST mnemonic. O stands for onset. So when did this pain start? And then the other important question to ask with that is, what were you doing when it started? That's one that sometimes gets overlooked. Uh, and I think it's kind of important when you're, you're trying to differentiate what might be going on. You know, it's, it's might be um, uh, easier to figure out what's going on if the person says, well, you know, I was just sitting there on the couch and the chest pain came on versus I was running a marathon and the chest pain came on. Oh, uh, we got that one. So next is P, and that's for provoking or palliative factors. So what makes the pain better or worse? Does the pain increase when you walk up a flight of stairs, run a marathon, uh, when you eat pizza? Does the pain get worse when you push on your chest or when you take a deep breath? When you cough or when you twist side to side and raise your arms in the air? Or when you touch the knife that's sticking out between your ribs from where you got stabbed 10 minutes ago? 
Uh, you know, does laying down flat or sitting up change the pain? Does rest make it better? Do the two Percocets you quote unquote borrowed from your mother help? Um, so then we have Q. Q is for quality. This is the describe your pain to me portion. Uh, sometimes I like to give people multiple choices, though frequently the descriptions that people give can be pretty uh, entertaining. Uh, but if I'm trying to get through things quickly because the patient, you know, they look pretty sick, I may just ask, you know, how would you say the pain is, you know, sharp, dull, achy, crampy, burning, stabbing, throbbing, tight, or pressure? You want to make sure they understand that we count pressure and tightness as pain. Uh, a lot of people, especially with the kind of classic MI symptoms, will have a pressure or a tightness. Like, it feels like an elephant sitting on my chest. Um, and you want to make sure we, we tell them that we count that as pain because we want to be able to evaluate our interventions. So we want to kind of make sure that tightness or pressure is being relieved as well. Uh, we're on to R. R is for region and radiation. So I want them to point with one finger where it hurts the most. If you just say, where's your belly pain? People will just take a you know, hand and kind of just go all over their abdomen and say, it kind of hurts here. Same thing with chest pain. It kind of hurts here with their whole hand. Well, did it really hurt on the right side of your chest, the, the left side of your chest, substernal? Use one finger to kind of point where it hurts the most. And then, you know, where does the pain go from there? Does it radiate to a jaw, a shoulder, arm, back, etc.? Uh, then S is for severity, the good old 0 to 10 scale. 0 being no pain, 10 being the worst pain ever. You will, without a doubt, see a 19-year-old texting on their phone with a bottle of Mountain Dew and a bag of chips, uh, sitting there at their bedside on the table, and they're laughing at something on the TV, saying, oh yeah, my pain's so much more than a 10. And then you will, without a doubt, see the complete opposite. You'll see a you know, 75-year-old man who's pale as a sheet, sweating buckets, telling you, oh, it's not that bad. Maybe it's a three or a four. You're taught all through school that pain is what the patient says it is and where they say it is. But pain doesn't exist in the vacuum of a textbook. Those other factors are important, and there's something that I definitely try to document um, when I chart about their pain. One thing I do agree with um, that's also taught is, uh, you know, more than that whole pain is what the patient says it is bit, is treat the patient, not the number. It's your job as the nurse to advocate for those quote-unquote three or four chest painters when they look like crap, just as much, if not more so, than the otherwise non-toxic appearing, oh, it's way over ten patients. Uh, the biggest point of asking this up front is, like I said, we want to be able to evaluate our interventions. Are the things we're doing helping their pain? And then lastly, you have T for time. So how long has this been going on? Have you had pain like this before? What happens? Uh, what happened last time when you had this pain? When someone says to me, oh, this feels exactly like my heart attack last June, but they don't have a STEMI on their EKG, I'm still going to be watching them like a hawk because that's that's just as clinically significant as the, the actual EKG showing a STEMI. You also want to know about other symptoms that are occurring, what we call associated symptoms, what things appear with the pain. Those, the big specific ones we like to talk about with chest pain are nausea, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis. So the other mnemonic I want you to remember for chest pain 
is Pet Mac. Think of it, you're, you're taking your pet dog named Mac out for a walk. Pet Mac is a way to look at the, the six big rule out diagnoses for chest pain. The things that are going to kill you that require near immediate, if not absolute immediate interventions. P is for PE or pulmonary embolism. This is a blood clot that's formed or traveled into the lungs. E is for esophageal rupture, which can be severe and deadly bleeding into the GI tract from the esophagus. And it's a real pain in the butt to control at bedside in a very unstable patient. Um, everyone, I'm sure, has seen The Exorcist and specifically the Linda Blair vomiting scene. Yeah, it's that, but with blood. T is for tension pneumothorax. Uh, it's a pretty big one with trauma, uh, sporting injuries. Uh, but we also see it in our asthmatic population with bad asthma attacks, air can enter into the mediastinum and then rupture into the pleural space. Um, and those people can go from uh, having a just a, a regular old asthma attack to all of a sudden that sense of impending doom that's frequently talked about, um, especially in nursing school. They, they discuss that all the time. You're like, what the heck is that? But when you see it on a patient, you know. Uh, M is for MI, or heart attack. Uh, and that we'll obviously be discussing a little bit later on, but that's going to be any kind of uh, ischemia or infarction of the heart. A is for aortic dissection. Uh, so a, a portion uh, typically around the aortic arch um, of the aorta has been kind of pounded on for so long by someone with hypertension that it's actually shearing the tissue of the aorta. Other big common causes of dissection uh, can include like Marfan syndrome, pregnancy, and then of course our, our big favorite one, trauma. Uh, and then C is for cardiac tamponade, when fluid collects in the pericardial sac, pushing against the heart. I don't know why, and this is almost embarrassing to admit, but tamponade was, it was confusing for me in nursing school for some reason. I, and I, I just, I don't get it. I, I think I thought it was a word for something cardiac related, the word tamponade, that is, um, instead of the method that's causing the problem. So to kind of make sure everyone's on the same page here, we, we think of it as an, an occlusion or putting pressure on something, like we tamponade the vein above an IV stick to prevent bleeding when we remove the angiocath and we're hooking up a J-loop, or we tamponade areas of active bleeding, like with a pressure dressing on someone who has a laceration or a penetrating wound. So cardiac tamponade is pressure being put on the heart. Try and picture uh, blood flowing through the heart. The atrium, you know, squeeze and dump into the ventricles. The ventricles expand as that gets dumped in until they get that maximal point and they squeeze to push blood either into the lungs from the right ventricle or the aorta from the left ventricle. So, you know, picture that beating heart in your hands and it's, it's pulsating and wobbling around as blood's thrust from location to location. And then if you take your hands and you squeeze around the heart, suddenly uh, not much blood can fill into those ventricles. Not much blood is getting returned to the atrium. So not much squeeze can occur to actually push blood around. Um, as you recall, or you may soon learn, cardiac output is stroke volume, which is to say how much blood the ventricle pushes out when it squeezes, multiplied by the heart rate. 
in tamponade, the cardiac output tanks because of the poor stroke volume, and it just can't be overcome by an increased heart rate. So, sorry about that tangent, but I'm kind of, kind of aiming this podcast at folks that you know may or may not know about the things I'm saying, so I want to kind of bring it to a level and make sure everyone's kind of on the same page. Uh, so quickly again, a quick refresh, PETMAC, PE, esophageal rupture, tension pneumo, MI, aortic dissection, cardiac tamponade. Uh, so to kind of help give us clues about that PETMAC, we want to know some patient history. Uh, specifically, you want to know about high blood pressure, what medications they're on, hyperlipidemia, and what medications are on for that. Um, though the, the kind of caveat behind that is that uh, cholesterol in general is being found to be a, a much poorer marker uh, for risk of MI than was initially assumed. Um, I think more uh, newer literature is kind of focusing in that direction, and there may be cutting back on some of the statins that people are getting prescribed, but for right now, it's one of the first things that, that everyone gets put on. Um, CHF, if they have any diuretics that they normally use, and if they've missed any doses of those diuretics. Any big inotropic medications to help with that pump and stroke volume. Uh, lung issues like COPD or asthma that we were talking about before. Uh, if they have a history of acid reflux, if they have a history of ulcers, uh, history of anxiety, if they're on blood thinners like Plavix, aspirin, and you always want to know about how much aspirin they've had that day. Uh, if they're on Coumadin, when the last time they got their Coumadin levels checked. Um, if any medications or doses have changed recently. And then you also want to know, uh, you know, kind of surgical-wise, if they've had a cardiac cath um, or um, if they had like a stress test or heart attacks in the past. Uh, you know, don't worry about getting too deep into family history. The physicians will touch on that more when they do their assessment. And unfortunately, we can't spend forever on any one patient. So with the physical assessment, more mnemonics. Um, A-A-B-B-C-C. Pretty easy one to remember. Your two A's. Your first one um, is their appearance. And this is kind of one that you should get just walking in the room. It's an overall picture. Um, you likely do this involuntary, not even thinking about it. Um, it's if you're standing across the room, would you be able to look at this person and say, you know, man, something's just, just not right with that guy. Or, you know, they look really sick. Um, or, you know, are they working hard to breathe? Are they slumped over? Are they difficult to arouse? Or are they, you know, laughing and looking at their phone while holding a conversation with a family member? Uh, the other A is your auscultations. Auscultate the heart. Do you hear any murmurs, any muffled heart sounds? Uh, muffled sounds can be a later finding in cardiac tamponade. It's one of the, the famous three symptoms of Beck's triad. Um, those don't have to be present, and again, those are late findings, so we don't always count on those. Um, and then while your hand is right there listening to the heart, go ahead and press on the chest too, wherever the pain was located. Uh, is it reproducible pain? Most of the time, reproducible pain is not cardiac related. That doesn't mean that all the time it is, but most of the time, uh, reproducible pain, re reproducible uh, pain is more um, like musculoskeletal and um, um, or even pleuritic in, in kind of nature. 
And then you want to auscultate the lungs, obviously, as well. Um, do you hear air movement in all fields? I hear lots of people saying, well, I didn't hear anything bad. I just don't know if I heard anything at all down there. Not hearing something is the equivalent of hearing something bad. Um, you want to still hear good air movement, even in those lower fields. Some people just don't put forth good effort. So you want to make sure you don't just say, now take some deep breaths. You know, let them know. Take a big breath with your mouth. Something that's going to be enough to let people... Um, or force people to take a, a bit of a bigger breath and kind of open up those lung bases too. If you still don't hear something, you know, then we're looking at your, your potential, you know, tension pneumothorax. So your B's, BB stands for back and belly. Any uh, bruising or tenderness on the back, um, any palpable pulses in the belly from a gigantic AAA, or the areas of pain in the belly, like your pancreatitis, your... Um, you know, gastritis, your acid reflux type patients um, that may have pain both above and below the diaphragm because of those um, those causes. And then CC for circulation and color. Uh, circulation, you want to check out their, their radial pulses. You know, are they symmetrical? Look for capillary refill in the hands. Check out their skin turgor in the forearm while you're down there, which also kind of helps us it kind of gives us an idea of the patient's volume status, if they're dehydrated or not, if they're tenting. Uh, you're going to look for some JVD, which is another one of those late findings for a cardiac tamponade, part of Beck's triad. Uh, look for edema in the lower extremities. And then is it unilateral, suggesting more like a DVT, or is it bilateral? Is it pitting or non-pitting edema? Pitting edema, like when, uh, when you press your finger and remove it, it's going to leave that indentation. Uh, that tends to be more of a sign of volume excess and leaky capillary beds. Uh, if it's not pitting, it can be a sign just of inflammation or it can be your, you know, your sign of a DVT. Uh, you want to check your dorsalis pedis pulses while you're down there just for completion's sake. Uh, you to make sure they're equal bilateral as well as check cap refill there on the toes. And then lastly, color, color of the patient. It kind of ties in a little bit with their appearance. Um, but, you know, is, is, do they appear jaundiced? Do they appear pale? Are they just your regular pink, warm, and dry kind of patient? Do they have purple lower extremities and a history of diabetes? So we're kind of looking for an overall picture of their circulation uh, when we're looking at their skin color. So to kind of quickly recap through my tangents and asides, a good focused assessment for chest pain should include vitals, the OPQRST pain assessment with their associated symptoms, past medical surgical history, and a physical assessment of their appearance, heart and lung sounds, back and belly exam, and circulation and color. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, nearly everyone is getting the EKG and chest x-ray. Those are kind of the the quick and dirty ones that you can give to everybody that help uh, fairly easily and even you know cost effectively rule out um, some of those big things. So they're going to help rule out the STEMIs. Um, they can help rule out your your in initial tension pneumothorax, but this can be kind of deceiving as well. Um, asthmatics can come in, get a chest X-ray. Hey, no tension pneumothorax, and they can develop it later on. So just because you you didn't see it on the first X-ray, doesn't mean it's not there now. Um, it can also kind of help somewhat diagnose or rule out things like esophageal rupture or dissecting aortas. Um, the widened mediastinum is the the one of the classic symptoms they list for dissecting aorta, but it's not. It's not 100% sensitive. It's only like 60%, as I recall, in terms of being 
um, accurate towards um, catching your dissecting aortas. But on an otherwise healthy patient, um, when that you're kind of low suspecting that that uh, might be the case, it's, it's going to kind of help rule it out for you. Same thing with esophageal rupture. Sometimes you'll see free air um, from a rupture and that, um, you know, that, that might show up as well. So it's one of those things where it, it's less to be the definitive diagnosis for something, but more to kind of rule out ones where your suspicion might be low. Uh, other in big uh, imaging studies that can be done are CTA pulmonary artery studies. This is your, your CAT scan with contrast to look for a blood clot in the lung. Um, or if the patient falls under the, yeah, it could be a PE or dissection criteria, uh, the physicians may want to just jump right into a, like a CT aorta of the chest and abdomen within without contrast. That way it kind of covers the, the largest length of the aorta before it splits, um, as well as it's going to give you a, a good look in the lungs as well. So unless there's concern, for an emergency situation, try to make sure your patient's chemistry panel uh, is back and then make sure their kidney function looks good before they go to any CAT scan with IV contrast. I know our uh, radiology techs are really good about uh, letting people know, hey, you want this patient to come over, but I don't have their labs back yet. Um, you may not have radiology techs that are that proactive about it, so you as the nurse being uh, the advocate for the patient, you want to make sure that their kidney function looks pretty good before you send them over to get their beans baked with some IV dye. Um, again, that's that's those non-emergent situations. If it's if it's a true emergency, sometimes they're going to say, you know what, we need to have the scan much more important than, than we have to worry about what their creatinine is right now. Um, so creatinine, I just mentioned, that's one of the big ones that they'll use to look at kidney function. Um, and I know our, our radiology techs also look at GFR as well. So the other big thing, specifically for the lady patients, is that you always have to assume uh, your female patients are pregnant until proven otherwise. It's kind of the innocent until proven guilty, they're pregnant until proven not. Um, if they're remotely close to childbearing years, I think... I think our protocol is like a age 11 to 65 or something crazy. Um, then at least a urine HCG should be documented. Um, or let the radiologist know so they can shield the patient's belly if possible. Uh, if this isn't something you think you can get urine on in a timely manner, you know, ask your physicians if they can add on an HCG, quantitative or qualitative, uh, a serum version to the blood work before the patient uh, you know, is exposed to any radiation. I know we have a we have a pretty large Somali population where I work, um, and it's it's uh, one of those things where part of their culture, um, a woman a woman's value is very much tied to their fertility and their ability to bear children. So it's not uncommon to see um, Somali women who come in for a possibly unrelated complaint and come to find out they are pregnant. They didn't even know it. So it's it's a kind of a big thing around. Um, our department to, to really go after the, the urines specifically, but to make sure that we have documented um, pregnancy versus not pregnancy before any kind of radiation. So everyone in, in nursing school <clears throat> seems to learn that, that acronym, you know, MONA or NOMA or whatever your flavor is when it comes to the, the standard chest pain, heart attack stuff. Um, and those that stands for your, your nitro, your O2, morphine, and aspirin. 
more and more with literature, O2, or at least the, the high flow O2, is kind of falling out of favor if the patient's O2 saturation is normal. There's plenty of nurses that are going to shake their heads when I say that you don't need to give oxygen to patients with normal O2 sats, uh, but be it post-arrest, MI, stable angina, studies are showing that hyperoxygenation um, has an increased mortality. At absolute worst, the studies, when, when you're asking the question, is high-flow oxygen helpful during cardiac events, uh, answer with no, and is it harmful with maybe. So I'd rather take, you know, the no and know that it's not going to be um, helpful than, than and, you know, with the potential concern for the harm, uh, just taking it out of the way. This is not to say that we don't uh, treat patients with oxygen and we don't give patients oxygen. Hypoxia is still something we treat. But the point I want to make is that just because somebody says they're having chest pain does not mean you need to blow 15 liters of oxygen in their face with a non-rebreather. So that leads us with the nitro, aspirin, and morphine medications. And we'll loop back to those when we get to MI. But let's kind of quickly work down our, our PETMAC list. Uh, when there's concern for anything of the PETMAC variety, you can guarantee that IV insertion and blood work will be a, a sure to follow. Uh, in general, we tend to call uh, draw what we call a rainbow whenever we start lines in our department, which includes tubes for uh, CBC or chemistry panels and cardiac enzymes, as well as coags. Um, depending on what the patient looks like, our concerns, we'll also sometimes draw uh, lactates, venous blood gases, type and screens, and those should always be considered kind of based on what the patient's presentation is. Being proactive about blood being drawn will save you headaches when something gets added 10 minutes after you start your lines and you have something like fluid hanging. For the most part, with these PETMAC type diagnoses, almost all these people are going to have two larger bore IVs. Um, especially if you're going to do a CAT scan as well. I know our department uh, requires um, at least a 20 gauge, preferably an 18, um, in the anacube or higher before they go to any um, studies that use IV dye. So the first one of our pet back, the pulmonary embolism. Uh, mostly these are broken down into two kind of larger types, submassive and massive. Um, seeing someone come in and be diagnosed with a massive PE is pretty rare. Most of the time when we see patients with massive PEs, um, they were out of hospital cardiac arrests and they came by medic. Uh, massive PEs are the ones that cause hemodynamic instability. It's going to be the one that's going to, that's going to tank their cardiac output, which is going to in turn uh, quickly lead to a shock-like state. I know the term shock is thrown around a lot in television and movies, but really just means a state of hypoperfusion. Uh, for this reason, part of the body is not receiving uh, amount of the, the proper amount of blood and oxygen as it should be. Uh, because uh, with the pulmonary embolism, we're, we're blocking the right side of the heart from getting good flow to the left side, which then in turn is giving poor flow throughout the body. Uh, a massive PE is obviously the most dangerous of the two, um, and it's, it's one of those things that's going to be treated emergently, uh, frequently with thrombolytics. So for us, that means TPA, uh, all to place. Uh, TPA stimulates fibrinolysis, meaning it's, it's a clot buster. It's not selective, so any area with clotting is going to bleed. 
IV insertion sites as well as sites where unsuccessful IVs were attempted, they're going to bleed. Uh, as TPA is being prepared, it's always a good time to get any possible areas of bleeding reinforced with wrapped gauze, pressure dressings, and we even wrap like Coban around them as well to provide some extra stickiness as things get wet. Uh, so the other types, submassive PEs, are then, obviously by definition, the ones that don't cause hemodynamic instability. Uh, more often these not, or more often than not, rather, these patients are going to be admitted, put on low molecular weight heparin doses like uh, Lovenox shots, and then monitors. Um, so there's, there's a trend that's developing to get these more stable PEs home instead of admitted, and I think that's great. Uh, Lovenox is easy to administer, and reductions in hospital stay is a benefit. Uh, it's going to reduce their chances of hospital-associated infections, and of course the large bill that comes with eating hospital food and watching hospital television all day long. So, uh, because therapy for submassive PEs, um, because it's not instantaneous, you also want to advocate for analgesics to kind of help with your patient's pain. It's hard to reevaluate or evaluate their initial Lovenox dose because it's not going to take their chest pain away. It's not going to make them feel any better about what's going on. It's just the, you know, what's the first dose of what, what's going to be uh, required while they're there. So giving them something for um, pain is definitely a, a good priority as well. So, uh, as mentioned, PEs are normally diagnosed with a CTA pulmonary artery CAT scan. Uh, sometimes they'll, if they're kind of on the fence about whether a person could, they will order a D-dimer uh, that's typically run with one of your coag tubes. So you want to make sure that coag tube is nice and topped off before you send it up. Otherwise, lab will probably be contacting you, requesting another one when the D-dimer order goes in. Uh, so when assessing someone, um, and there's concern or suspicion for PE, there's yet another mnemonic you can use. This one is breaths. Uh, B-R-E-A-T-H-S. B for blood in the sputum. Uh, so you have hemoptysis, which is kind of an obvious one if somebody has a blood clot there in their lungs. R is for a room air saturation, less than 95%. E is for estrogen or oral contraceptives. Uh, for some reason, the, in the last year or so, we've seen a lot of younger females with uh, bad, bad PEs uh, because of changing medications or being put on a new um, a contraceptive medication. They just there seem to be some 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 bad juju going around with some of the the oral contraceptives. Uh, a is for uh, age greater than 50. I've also heard 55. Uh, T is for thrombosis in the past, as well as for travel. So your recent travel, normally it's one of those things we have to have pooling for at least, I believe, six hours. So if you got up in the airplane, you're walking around, you know, that travel doesn't really count unless you're actually just sitting in this chair for six hours. Um, H is for heart rate greater than 100. So again, because your cardiac output isn't great and you're kind of hypoperfusing with a, a PE, um, your stroke volume being reduced, your heart, or your body's going to compensate by increasing your heart rate to in, improve your overall cardiac output. So tachycardia tends to be a pretty common symptom among PE patients. Uh, and then S is for surgery in the last month. 
So, real quick again, breaths. B for blood and sputum, R for room air, sat less than 95%, E for estrogen, oral contraceptives, A for that age greater than 50, T for thrombosis or recent travel, H for the heart rate greater than 100, S for the surgery in the last month. So then we have, let's see, PETMAC E, so esophageal rupture. So these are your, your bad upper GI bleeds. Uh, you're going to see lots of bright red blood in the vomit. I don't mean like streaks of blood because they... You ate bad sushi and threw up 10 times. I mean, copious amounts of pure red blood. Uh, normally, this is diagnosed or, or at least um, large concern for with, uh, with a chest x-ray. Unless there's actual vomiting of blood, catching uh, an esophageal rupture early is pretty difficult to do. Classic symptoms... Uh, my chest pain, vomiting, and then sometimes they'll get subcutaneous air, but these are definitely not always present. Uh, typically, this patient is someone who is likely a heavy drinker, an alcoholic. Um, they may have Barrett's esophagus um, or a history of gastric ulcers. Um, tamponade is your big treatment of choice um, in the ED when a rupture occurs. Um, you may also likely do a bolus um, and a drip of a proton pump inhibitor, something like protonics, kind of no matter what the stage of the GI bleed is, um, you know, low to high, protonics is one of those ones at least our docs tend to be using on, on pretty much every upper GI bleed. Um, so then, uh, you know, rather than wasting a lot of time talking about the, the Blakemore tube, uh, which is the catheter that's inserted into the esophagus all the way down to the stomach, and what we use for tamponade with esophageal rupture, um, I'm going to want you to check the show notes. There's a wonderful, wonderful video by the amazing Scott Weingart. Um, he's a physician um, who uh, works out of New York and does the MCRIT podcast. Um, but it's, he has a great video on the insertion and the use of the Blakemore. Um, I'd also suggest te- uh, checking out the MCRIT podcast. Uh, you can do so at mcrit.org. That's E-M-C-R-I-T.org. Um, he's also on iTunes as well. Um, I highly suggest you listen to it. It's, it's physician-focused, but there's a lot of great information that's still applicable to the nursing role, and more knowledge is always a good thing. So prior to the insertion of a Blakemore, um, if the bleed's not that bad, chances are they're going to want to decompress as much of the bleeding out as they can. So you'll probably be dropping an NG down. Uh, though you can also do this with the Blakemore once it's inserted, and then you can even lavage the stomach through a Blakemore as well. But uh, for the most part, um, this is going to be done with an NG on the, on the less serious patients. So PETT, so the attention pneumos. Uh, these people are going to be in uh, pretty decent to severe respiratory distress. Uh, frequently, they'll kind of have like a diffuse chest pain. It's going to be kind of difficult for them to pinpoint where their pain's located, and more often than not, they're going to be tachycardic. Uh, the definitive fix for a tension pneumothorax is a chest tube, but in a pinch, uh, needle decompression is normally done at the bedside just to relieve the pressure. 14-gauge uh, cath. Uh, normally two inches or greater. Sometimes you have to have some bigger ones. I know we have three inch 12 gauges that we keep as well. Um, and especially on patients that may have more muscle mass, that's going to be your better choice. Um, it's inserted into the second intercostal space just above the third rib on the midclavicular line of the affected side. 
Sometimes um, it's difficult to hear lung sounds on the opposite side, so you want to make sure you know which is the affected side before you start doing needle decompressions. Um, on bad and bad critical patients, they may just needle decompress both just because, hey, they're there and why not. Uh, chest x-rays are used to both diagnose as well as evaluate the effectiveness of the needle decompressions in the chest tubes. Um, so that's that's kind of your tension pneumos in a nutshell. And again, like I mentioned with the asthmatics before, just because they don't come in with a tension pneumo doesn't mean they can't develop one later on. So getting their asthma attacks under control is a pretty big priority. So M, MI. So now we kind of come back to the the rest of the NOMA uh, pneumonic there, the nitro aspirin and morphine. Uh, chest pain when we're concerned for it being cardiac related um, is because of ischemia. So ischemia is just a lack of oxygen. Uh, in this case, it's to the cardiac tissue. As this causes pain, the body's natural physiology ends up kind of working against it. Uh, tachycardia is a normal physiological finding with pain, and anxiety can certainly follow with that, especially when people think that it's cardiac related. Um, anxiety is, is going to be right behind. So all of those uh, are increasing oxygen, um, oxygen demand of the heart um, because of that tachycardia. And, and that's the exact opposite of what we want to have happen to help reduce both the pain and the potential tissue damage. There's that, that common phrase again with the heart attacks and strokes that the whole you know time is tissue or time is muscle. So the, the quicker it gets resolved, the more tissue or muscle is saved. The longer it goes on, the more tissue or muscle is lost and therefore worse outcomes. So the, the classic MI is pressure in the chest, which radiates to the jaw, left shoulder, left arm, with associated nausea, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis. However, these, these classic symptoms are not always appropriate for the fair sex. Uh, you know, we're finding that you know women don't fall under that that typical presentation. More often than not, they have very atypical presentations. Sometimes they'll just say, you know, I haven't felt well. I've been a little sick to my stomach, or I've just had this back pain that won't go away. So be very careful when it comes to women and non-chest pain chief complaints. Um, if there's any kind of a diabetic history or that previously mentioned quote-unquote heart history, uh, they still fall into our facility's protocol for an EKG on arrival. Unless allergic, everyone that has MI on their potential differential should be getting a full 4-baby aspirin, so a full, a full dose, the 325 or 324 with the babies. Um, you want to check with your patient about what they take at home, like I mentioned before. Um, physicians will frequently you know, kind of hear the ba basic story and they'll go put in orders and then there's the full dose of 325, but hey, they took two baby aspirin home or they didn't read the triage note yet and the medics already gave them 325 in route. So you want to make sure that they're, they, don't, they don't need that extra dose. You are the last line of defense to make sure the, the vast majority of medications and interventions are appropriate for your patient. As long as they've had at least one full dose uh, in the last, I think it's 24 hours, you, you're done with that medication. So the nitro should be your medication of choice prior to narcotics like morphine. Typically, this is done with the 0.4 milligram sublingual nitros, uh, Q5 minutes times three total doses. 
very much, uh, that's kind of pretty much standard kind of things that if your patient's systolic drops too low, based on where you are, normally it's 90 or 100, uh, you know, whatever your facility suggests, or the patient becomes pain-free, you pull the remaining doses, you're done. Um, you don't ever want to give nitro without an IV established first, however. Uh, depending on where in the heart the MI is located, or the potential MI, uh, you can completely tank a patient's blood pressure with nitro, and you want to be able to, to give them a fluid bolus to kind of bring it back up. Nitro is a, a vasodilator, which means it's going to open up your blood vessels, and it's going to do so rapidly. So this is going to decrease preload, afterload, and therefore it's going to um, give that, uh, that overall oxygen, uh, oxygen demand of the heart is going to be reduced as well. Um, so th this is also the kind of reason why we use morphine. Um, while, yeah, it's going to reduce their pain because it is a narcotic, and it's uh, also going to reduce their anxiety, both of those things are going to reduce the oxygen demand. Uh, so your big concerns with morphine, of course, are going to be the nausea, um, especially in the opiate-naive patients, as well as respiratory depression. If they only order morphine, you want to ask if you can slap, you know, four or eight milligrams of Zofran along with the order to kind of help treat the nausea before it occurs. And frequently, these, these people have associated nausea with their chest pain anyway, so treating it should be something you should be concerned about regardless. Um, I had a, a preceptor um, when I did a critical care fellowship. I was in um, a trauma ICU, and he gave me this bit of advice that I like to stick by. Uh, he gave me lots of amazing advice, but with the, the medication administration, the one thing he always says that, you know, always know what you can do to fix any potential problems with the medication before you give it. So with nitro, you want to have those fluids primed nearby, ready to go, just in case. And with morphine, um, we're, we're treating this uh, with the Zofran to help with the nausea. And in terms of the respiratory depression, um, you want to know where the the wonderful medication is to reverse it. Uh, in this case, it's the, the love-hate relationship in the ED of Narcan. Um, so it is the, the wonderful opioid antagonist. It's great for the, the non-breathing overdose patients that get shoved out of a car door in the ambulance bay, but it's not always as great for the ones that are breathing on their own, satting okay, they're going to come out swinging as soon as the, the Narcan takes away their buzz. Uh, in this case, however, uh, respiratory depression and the associated hypoxia kind of defeat the purpose of what we're trying to do, so know where to find your Narcan in a pinch. Again, back to that first episode, know where your crash carts are, there should always be Narcan in your crash carts. Alright, so A, aortic dissection. So in truth, um, as the nurse, we frequently don't get to do a lot with these patients. It, it's a pretty rare diagnosis to begin with, at least with the patients that uh, we see in my department. Uh, and when it is diagnosed, frequently it's either a surgical emergency, at which point the workup and the role of the emergency department kind of wraps up pretty quickly, or they medically manage the patient, which normally means... Uh, titrating something like an Esmolol or Nipride drip to reduce blood pressure, and then they get admitted upstairs. So, you know, classically, this is this is the chest pain that will be described as uh, straight through from the chest to the back, and they'll sometimes use words like ripping or tearing sensations. Uh, whenever a patient says that, uh, it's definitely one of those increased sphincter tone moments. Um, be careful not to put those words into the patient's mouth, however. As any seasoned triage nurse will tell you, 
if you ask a patient if they have a specific complaint, more often than not, they will say yes. So if you say, well, do you have a ripping sensation in your chest? They may ponder for a moment and then say, well, you know, now now that you mention it, I guess you could call it that. And then now suddenly you're wanting to drag the doctor into the room and you're calling CT to clear the table and getting all worked up. And then when the doctor asks them what's their pain, you know, what it feels like, they're going to say, well, it's like a stabbing pain when I'm reaching over my head, which suddenly doesn't sound anything at all like ripping pain that goes through to my back. Um, so the Definitive treatments for this are going to be your your reduction in hypertension. So, kind of being more aggressive about hypertension treatment. Uh, Most of that's going to be done on um, the floors or outpatient um, testing. It's not really going to be done in the emergency department. Um, It's one of those frustrating things that you'll see time and time again. Dropping a patient's blood pressure is not a great thing in the emergency department. We frequently don't touch blood pressure in the emergency department. Um, you know, somebody comes in with a pressure that's 220 over 100. You don't know how long their pressure has been like that. And acutely dropping it um, is going to probably cause an infarction somewhere in their body because you now have these vessels that are so used to being pressurized open with, you know, um, a freaking water, uh, what's the word they call it, the, the pressure sprayer. And now all of a sudden you, you've turned off the, the flow by reducing their, their blood pressure and now that's those, those tubes just kind of get kinked up and then you have no perfusion to those areas. So you're going to kill off somebody's kidneys um, just by dropping somebody's blood pressure like that. Um, and, and you'll, you'll sometimes hear floor nurses too, that will, when you're calling reports, like, and what did you do for their blood pressure? Well, I didn't do anything down here. That's, it's kind of your job upstairs. They didn't come in complaining about their blood pressure and I didn't treat it. Um, so then lastly, there's, there's what, uh, C cardiac tamponade. So I, I kind of mentioned some of the symptoms earlier, but the, the classic that Bex triad I mentioned before are your muffled heart tones, JVD and hypotension. Uh, again, those are kind of your late findings with tamponade. Not all of them are likely going to be present. Um, trauma, like uh, chest hitting the steering wheel with an, uh, an MVA, is your pretty common cause. Uh, but it can also be related to heart attacks and pericarditis, uh, recent open heart surgeries or cardiac cats, uh, and even things like radiation treatments to the chest for lung cancers. So, so once again, there's that reduction in the cardiac output. So think about symptoms related to poor perfusion in the body. Weakness, they may appear pale, short of breath. Uh, they may have syncopal episodes. The chest x-ray is likely going to show um, an enlarged cardiac silhouette, uh, which may then result in either a bedside ultrasound or a chest CT to help diagnose. Uh, so the definitive treatment for tamponade is a pericardiocentesis. That's where that big old needle is going to be inserted into the pericardial sac, and then the fluid's going to be drained. No, we don't do this. This is for the physician. Uh, these patients are definitely at risk to have this happen again. So just because that pericardial sac has been drained, monitoring them afterward is definitely a big priority. All right, so evaluating your interventions. Um, so on any one of these diagnoses, you kind of always want to start with the pain scale comparison. Did their pain improve after the interventions? Pain management is becoming a bigger and bigger emphasis on the floors and in the emergency department. Uh, and advocating to help reduce pain to an acceptable level for the patient. Uh, sometimes it's an, unco- un- un- excuse me, an uncomfortable situation for the nurse. 
Um, because the ED often it kind of fosters cynical feelings when it comes to pain and what we feel is appropriate. Um, you know, we see a lot of drug seeking behavior and, uh, sometimes people kind of do little, you know, behind the scenes high fives when people get denied narcotics. Uh, you know, this, this kind of comes back to treating the patient and not the number. If the patient looks better, the associated symptoms are gone and they're now, you know, joking around with me when before they couldn't catch their breath enough to get more than a word out at a time. I want to document that. I want to, I want to paint a picture on how I'm evaluating the interventions beyond just a pain number. Um, if they still look like crap though, you can bet your butt that I'm going to be, um, you know, advocating for more pain medicine for these people. Just because they had, you know, medication 30 minutes ago does not mean that they don't need more now. So I think that's about uh, all I'm going to do for now. This has gone on way longer than I, my, my typical ones are hoping to be. Um, I, again, want to thank Pretty Lights for the background music of today's episode. You can check out more at prettylightsmusic.com. If you want to drop me a line, uh, talk, talk to me about anything I may have missed or things you want to hear about in the future, you can contact me at edcrashcart at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at edcrashcart or visit me on the web at edcrashcart.com where you can check out uh, previous episodes and show notes for each episode, including this one, where I will link the wonderful video for the Blakemore Tube from Scott Weingart. Uh, you can also search for the podcast in iTunes. If you want to subscribe to get new the, uh, the, the new episodes automatically. Um, so don't forget to do that while you're there. And while you're there, also don't forget to leave a review. So until next time, this is Cameron. Hoping that all your chest pain patients at least feel worse than you do after working a 12-hour shift. Goodbye. <laughs>